Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey, you guys. Today's episode of Other People is brought to you by the brand new Real Estates app. It's an app for your iPhone, your iPad, what have you. R-E-E-L, Estates, Real Estates. It's only 99 cents. Here's what it is. It's an app that shows you where the houses and apartments of your favorite fictional characters in film and television are actually located in real life. You want to see the Brady Bunch house in Studio City? The Real Estates app will take you there. Or what about Jeff Lebowski's bungalow in Venice Beach? done or how about hannah horvath's brooklyn apartment in the hit television show girls the real estates app knows all you've seen these places on the screen but with the real estates app you can see them in person it's a great way to explore your city plan a trip or take out of towners on a unique tour with photos maps directions and a database of over 450 locations throughout the country real estates is easy to use and extremely entertaining better yet it spans decades of pop culture with TV shows ranging from The Jeffersons to Modern Family and a whole host of films ranging from Breakfast at Tiffany's to Ted. With the click of a button, you can see which real estates are near you. For all you know, you could be blocks away from Marty McFly's house or Elliot's house in E.T. Uh, did you know that Connor from Highlander lived on the same block as Derek Zoolander? Now you do. Real estates where your favorite characters live for more information, go to real-estates.com. That's R-E-E-L-estates.com. Or just get it at the App Store. It's available now for only 99 cents. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is what my head sounds like. This is recorded in an apartment building. Thanks for being here. 
my name is Brad Listy, and I'm a podcaster from Los Angeles. And I am so pleased that you have decided to consume my content. Uh, Alyssa Nutting is here today. She's not actually here right now, but she is today's guest. And her new novel, Tampa, has been making some noise. So get ready for that. Uh, before we before we get started, though, I want to uh, circle back a little bit and talk about the lovely and talented debate that came up in the last episode's monologue. Basically, it's about my tendency to, t- to introduce female guests as, quote, the lovely and talented. As in, uh, the lovely and talented Alyssa Nutting. So, for those of you who are not up to speed, a listener named Buddy wrote to me recently complaining about this and suggested uh, that I stop doing it. That I should decouple the notions of aesthetic beauty and professional talent. So, uh, since then, I've gotten some responses from other listeners, and I figured... Uh, it would make sense to read a couple of them and to reflect. So the first one comes from Max Millwood, the program's most concerned and consistent critic. He emails me a, a full review of every single episode, as many of you know. So... Uh, Here are Max's thoughts on this particular issue. Dear Brad, he writes, I've been telling you for half a year at this point to grow some balls, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to outright oppose Buddy because, well, he does make a valid observation. While true men don't tread lightly, they also don't disrespect their guests and audience with double standards, regardless of how subtle and seemingly harmless those double standards might be. So listen to the feedback. And don't value women's input over men's, as that is a flipped continuation of sexist thinking. And follow accordingly. If most women, as I expect, tell you that Buddy's ridiculous, undergrad-nourished, bleeding heart is not worth fretting over, then proceed in accordance to your values and wishes. My only encouragement to you in what might become a turbulent round of feedback is that you try more and more to own your show As a confident, charming, and sincere host, that should stay your main focus. Uh, What's more important than a meager introduction is whether you make the guest feel lovely and talented in the way that you conduct a supreme interview. Channel your feelings and frustrations into making a great show. Don't entertain the salon slash slate heads like Buddy and your audience. Don't indulge. Listy watch. Don't stifle yourself. Just be you and be great. Approval is yours for the making, not for the taking. I love you, Max. Uh, And then a longtime listener named Leah has this to say. Dear Brad, she writes, Here are my two cents about the lovely and talented debate as a devoted female listener of your show. Uh, The lovely and talented so-and-so feels rote at this point. Since you always say it, it's lost its meaning, even if the meaning was slash is well-intentioned. I happen to love the word lovely and use it to describe people and events with uh, embarrassing frequency. I just can't find a word I like better. 
So for me, this is not an issue of whether it's offensive to call someone lovely. And by the way, I think the buddy is off the mark to think that lovely is only an aesthetic thing. To me, it's much more about someone's overall vibe, for lack of a better word, than it is about any physical attribute. But here's my trouble. I find it sort of sad that you introduce male guests almost exclusively without superlatives. You don't say the lovely and talented George Saunders or the brash and courageous Sam Pink. Uh, The lack of superlatives in the introduction of male guests seems to imply that their work, whatever's been written or said about them before, and the conversation that is about to ensue will demonstrate their talent and character. Basically, it makes it seem like their work stands on its own. So that's all. Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, I love it when you talk about animal rights stuff, too, by the way. As a former vegan who's now eating everything, I like to be brought back to reality sometimes. All best, Leah. Uh, I, you know, I don't talk about animal rights stuff that often, but I think Leah might be the only listener who likes it when I do. <laughs> I feel like people hate animal rights. Or something. I I feel like I only talk about that stuff when it comes up in conversation during an actual interview. Uh, But personally, I can't talk about it without immediately sensing hatred among the listenership. As if, uh, no matter how well-spoken and non-dogmatic I may be, the effect is nevertheless one of uh, like sanctimonious overreach. It's tough. I love animals. And uh, I think we should be nicer to them. So thank you, Leah, for the kind words and the good feedback. And thank you to Max as well. Uh, As for my uh, concluding thoughts on this, I I think I'm going to stop saying it. I think I'm going to stop saying lovely and talented for female guests. Not because I feel horrible about it, per se, or that I feel like I've done something awful necessarily, uh, but just because I don't want to rankle people. Nor do I want to beat a dead horse. And, you know, at this point, having analyzed it pretty thoroughly, it's sort of no fun to say it anymore. I'm too self-conscious. So, I don't know. Uh, Or, you know, maybe I should just go in the other direction and uh, grow some balls, as Max put it. And I should become like lewd and lascivious and hypersexualized in all of the intros, regardless of gender. Maybe that would help ratings. <laughs> you know, maybe this is what the world of literary podcasting needs. Like, like, ladies and gentlemen, here he is, the surprisingly well hung Jonathan Franzen. Ladies and gentlemen, here she is, an incredibly hot piece of ass, Alyssa Nutting. And by the way, fellas, her last name is Nutting. Sorry about that. Sorry, Alyssa. It's purely incidental that I uh, use you as an example. And uh, I think I just embarrassed myself. My guest today is Alyssa Nutting. Uh, She is a wonderful writer. Her new novel, her debut novel, Tampa, 
is now available from Echo. It's one of the most controversial and talked about novels of the summer, and I'm very pleased to have her here on the show. So let's get started. Let's do this. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, see, it's it's screwing me up right there. I stumbled because I'm getting to the part where I usually say the lovely and talented. It's it. This is in my brain now. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Alyssa Nutting, and her novel, once again, is called Tampa. I am in my office on campus, which I've kind of turned into my own perverse little carnival. Um, I have my, my sort of primary goal as as a, a teacher is, is to freak my students out. Um, so wow. I have a gigantic mirror of a unicorn um, <laughs> that's about three feet tall um, on the wall. I have several, um, I collect photos where um, creepy Caucasian babies are praying by the bed with animals. <laughs> um, specifically us like Springer Spaniels and cats. Um, so those are everywhere, um, and I'm I'm also gaping down the um, the open orange maw of a bag of sun chips. Sun chips. Um, those things are evil. They're um, they're one of the only snacks available on campus. Um, I always prefer like the filthiest thing I can possibly <laughs> eat. Um, so it's a little disappointing. It, 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 it sort of um, rains on my soul a bit to eat, um, you know, anything that says like whole grain on the bag. Um, I, I much prefer like banned in Europe <laughs> um, on my, on my bags of food, but um, you know, it was all, it was the only thing available. So, and you say that you like to freak your students out. And so like what naturally pops up in my brain is like, what are they thinking of this book? Because you're a, te- <laughs> you're a teacher and you wrote a book about a teacher having sex with her, stu- you know, with students. Yes. Um, luckily I, I, um, I teach at, at a, a college. So, um, yeah, if, if I taught eighth grade, I would think that that would be, um, be quite uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but I um I, I teach at I teach at a, a Jesuit university. Um so a lot of times, you know, my students have kind of um you know, had a had a pretty sheltered sort of um experience, you know, going to, to a private high school and, and now um a private college, you know, with, with sort of um a somewhat kind of homogeneous, I guess, uh you know, group of friends that have a whole lot in common with them. Um, you know, so so I'm literally the weirdest person they have met in their life, um, and probably will meet. You know, I mean, sometimes I, I I just feel like, you know, the class they take with me is sort of their one window, you know, into um, into the bizarre. But you so, but you have um, to have you have to have a couple of like there's at least one or two crazies every semester who want to leap through that window, right? And Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And it's it's the best. You know, like um I, I almost feel like a drug dealer sometimes, you know, like they'll pass the office and I'm like you know, and, and I, I, I give them, you know, like, like a crazy book, um, you know, and, and they devour it and love it. Um, 
like uh, like Katie Arnoldi's Chemical Pink. Um, I had Katie you know, on the show. Oh, I love her. Yeah. I love her writing so much. She's super and, cool. Um, Oh, she's amazing. You know, and I mean, they just, it, it, it's its literally mind-blowing to them. Like, I mean, they can't, like, their mind's, like, literally blown. Like, they can't speak for a few days. Um, you know, they'll open their mouth, but words will not come out. Um, they'll just kind of proceed around campus in a state of shock. And then when they <laughs> get their speech abilities back, you know, they're like, this changed my entire life. Um, and that, you know, that's what, that's what I want to do, you know, as, as a professor. I can think of few, you know, things more complimentary i think to to me and what i'm supposed to be doing um, well, well i feel know. like i feel like when you're when you give somebody a book that really like because the thing about it is that it's it's very delicate it's about timing it's about a, the time in a person's life and it's a mm-hmm. match it's a matchmaking thing it's almost like when mm-hmm. you when, if you can give somebody a book that truly does blow their mind mm-hmm. uh, it's almost like you introduce them to their future wife or husband or something <laughs> <laughs> right. it's the same it's the same level of connection in a way you know there's something very um i don't know it's the kind of thing that would make me feel proud you know yeah no and i, I think you're really right to to sort of compare it you know to a romance right um because i mean even though like just me personally i i always knew that you know reading was kind of my thing and I always knew that writing was kind of my thing but it honestly wasn't even in college that I started being introduced to sort of writers that made me understand what I was able to write and had the freedom to write um you so, know like um, so what blew, you know, your, what George... blew your mind yeah like what blew your mind in college that did this oh yeah well um we um we read uh we read uh, sea Oak by George Saunders in the very first workshop I, I ever took um, in at, at the graduate level, you know, at, at the MFA level. Um, and where did, and you I mean, go, where did you go to get your MFA? Um, University of Alabama. And I just, you know, I mean, there were just so many things going on in that story, you know, that like would not go on in a Hemingway story. <laughs> um, you know, and I mean, I, I thought, for I resisted I resisted the whole writing bug for the longest time. I mean, I just grew up in a very traditional household, you know, where where practicality was really prized. Where did you where did you grow up? Everything. Um my first my first twelve years were in rural Michigan. Um I mean it was just it was so small and um I, I really we didn't you know, my parents didn't know it then. I don't even know if, if it was kind of a a diagnosis yet then, but um I have like flaming seasonal affective disorder. Um I just get catatonic in the winters if I don't take preventative measures, which um were not taken when I was younger. Um and it was really, really horrible. Um I did this weird transference thing where when winter came as a young child, I was absolutely convinced that I was going to be abducted by aliens. Um, and it wasn't like a passing concern. I mean, this was like I would vomit out of stress 
because I'm like, tonight's the night, you know, like everything you've ever known and loved and cared about is going to, you know, have to say goodbye to you because they're going to take you away and, and um, not bring you back. Um, and I mean, like I would stay up all night with the light on reading in this like, weird um, Garden of Gethsemane ritual, you know, where I just like felt like I could not fall asleep because that's when they would come. It's like um, it's like a nightmare on Elm Street, right? Yes. No, precisely. Precisely. Um, and, you know, then like in school all day, I'd be like struggling to stay awake. And um, I mean, this was a pretty heavy burden to bear, you know, this, this fact that I, I was going to be forcibly extricated, you know, by, by sort of these beings that were going to physically torture me until I expired, I where, presume. Where did this come from? Like, what, what, what conjured, where did you conjure this from? Um, okay, so there used to be this um, amazing, I forget, there's, there's some sort of great, great word or phrase for like, um, sensational entertainment based news programs. I guess we call it like Fox now, but I don't know what we called it then. It was like, um, but there was a show called Hard Copy. Oh, yeah. And um, they did, they showed a clip of a movie called Communion, which um, which is based on this book written by um, Whitley Strieber. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. um, Who, who says straight up, you know, he, he, he has been abducted by aliens several times, you know, and this happened to him, you know, this really happened. Um, and this is like his true story. Um, it's not, you know, this is, he in no way puts it forward as, as, you know, anything like one false word in the book, you know, to him, this is a, a true experience that happened. And the scene that they showed on hard copy, um, you know, was simply kind of like these wayfish, um, you know, like, I mean, nearly like, you know, eating disorderly, like thin, um, <laughs> tiny, tiny, like, honestly, like thinking back on it now, like they, they're not even that threatening the way they were shown. They sort of like have like the bodily composition of like Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen, you know, say, it's like sort of... <laughs> even, even aliens, even aliens have body dysmorphia. So. <laughs> right, right. Not I mean, alone. they're little, you know, they're extremely petite and extremely thin, but they just march into his bedroom at night. His wife doesn't wake up, you know, she's, um, she's on the horse tranquilizer or whatever, for whatever reason, she doesn't notice, you know, but they just come in and they, you know, they take him from his bed and he's, you know, he doesn't, he's awake, he doesn't want to be taken, but they're, they take him out of the bedroom. Um, and so I saw that scene and, um, you know, I mean, heard it, you know, talked about in a very, you know, as, you know, this is, this is from his true life memoir, um, and I don't know. I mean, it just um, it just really, really stuck with me. It was like this kind of instantaneous, oh, yes, that is going to happen to me, too. Um, I in no way questioned it. I just immediately started dreading it. Um, I mean, that, that's just kind of like how I roll. I'm just always waiting for like the next thing that I'm going to have to dread um, <laughs> in general, you know, even as like an eight-year-old. Um, and, and, yeah, so I... Um, I, I kind of lived with that for, for a really long time. And oddly, what got me off of it was sort of this um, this 
purpose. I mean, it, like this went on for like a year and a half. It was horrible. Like I, I really did not get a regular night of sleep for a year and a half. And I was falling asleep at school and my parents were talking to therapists. And I mean, it was like a bad, bad thing. Um, but what got me off of it, oddly enough, was like reading books that were supposed to be frightening. Um, so like, I mean, at like nine years old, I was like reading every Stephen King book there was. Um, and my parents kind of had this great, um, this great non-interventionist philosophy where they, they sort of, they felt like the, t- the television was a very dangerous place and the internet wasn't even kind of around yet um, in the home. So, um, I mean, they just felt like as long as they censored what I watched on television, nothing, you know, like nothing kind of, no no harmful uh, thoughts could come into my head. So they let, um, they let you read freely? They, yeah, I mean, they just didn't, it, and it wasn't because they thought even a, even a scary book is fine, or even a, a you know, like book with sexual content is fine. Like they, they, they in no way thought that they just really like, they would never read a, a, a book in the horror genre and they would never read a book that had anything sexually taboo. I mean, most of their, the books that they read are like chicken soup, you know, for like the, you know, really great person's soul. Um, you know, I mean, they're just uplifting. They usually have like religious content, um, you know, like this kind of great affirmative religious content, not like Faulkner you know, religion. Um, and, and so they just assume that, you know, that I was only bringing home books that were very, um, benign. Um, you know, so they, they didn't, they didn't check what I was reading. Um, if they, if they had checked, they would have had a giant problem with it, but I was just able to really, um, I mean, that's how I blew my mind, you know, open, um, was to sort of begin learning about, about things that, you know, would, were, were censored to me in every other avenue of life. Um, I was able to kind of read about them and learn about them well, in it, books. It's interesting because I went through a similar phase, both with movies and uh, books, when I was an adolescent, and, you know, early adolescent, early junior high. Um, and I think, this is, I think this is common for young kids to read horror and to be obsessed with mm. horror movies. And yeah. I, you know, I read something or heard it explained to me in a way that made sense because it's like, you know, there's all these bodily fluids coming out. There's like, <laughs> pen, there's penetration, there's bleeding, you know? Like, right. So, I mean, it's like, it's like a way to sort of exercise those psychological fears and to see them played out. And it sounds like for you, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive at first blush, but like you read these things and it somehow diffused your fear of alien abduction. It, I, yeah, it, it totally did, you know, I mean, be, you know, because sort of for one, in a lot of like sort of the, the, the Stephen King books, you know, even though the sort of, you know, they go through hell, they sort of prevail in the end or in the end, you know, there's there's some kind of redemption for the main character. Um, but I mean, you also just sort of see, you see that struggle and you see people like dealing with 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 things that are there and in their face and tangible in a way that the aliens were not for me, you know? So I, I sort of, you know, was just kind of able, you know, to, to use it as a sort of 
crutch, you know, in that, okay, well, you know, if, if this person's sort of dealing, you know, with the undead, you know, um, in his <laughs> living room, then I can probably, you know, um, manage my anxiety about abduction in, in a more manageable way. Well, and you know, it's like the alien abduction fear. Cause I, I used to have fear. Like there was this big thing when I was a kid growing up in the eighties about like, don't talk to strangers. And there was oh, the, yeah. the Adam Walsh story, which like still haunts mm-hmm. me. Oh yeah. God, me too. Yeah. All that stuff. And so there was like, there was a fear of abduction. I think it like, you know, it comes down to any child's fear of separation from home and family, which like you can find in something as, um, you know, common or benign as like the wizard of Oz. You know, I think that's part of the reason why that story resonates so much is that she's like swept mm. away, you know, from her, her home in Kansas or whatever. But, um, you think that's what it was for you? Like, it was like this fear of somehow being separated from your family or do you, do you have a, a sense of what was the core of it? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think it was just, I don't know what the, um, what the, what sort of the therapist told my parents who then told me, because that that's one thing that they were always very, very good at um, in, in terms of like, they never kind of, um, they never explained things to me. Like I was a child. I remember at one point I was in, I was in my closet in the bedroom because, you know, hiding from aliens and, um, <laughs> they wouldn't let me what I wanted to do was sleep like on the floor of their bedroom, um, which was like 30 degrees in the winter, you know, and, and, you know, in, in their wisdom, they realized, you know, that kind of like me, you know, getting like, um, you know, tuberculosis or something was kind of a more, uh, a, a truer threat, you know, than, um, than aliens taking me away, you know, said, no, you know, like you, you can't sleep on, on the, icy, you know, wooden floor of our bedroom. Um, so I was screaming out something like, why did you, why did you have me if you, if you don't love me? (laughs) And, uh, you know, my mother was like, you're being very manipulative. Right. Um, and I didn't, I didn't like really know what that meant, but I, I sort of was able to wrap my mind around it a little But I mean, they were very good, you know, at, at sort of telling, telling it straight. So they told me that, that the therapist felt that it was kind of my, um, my confronting of the fact that there's evil in the world and danger sure. in the world. Um, you know, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know how I, how I feel about that, um, you know, be, because like I mean, I think that it was definitely, it, w- it was definitely like this fear of 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 being out of control, you know, and knowing. And I mean that, you know, that that haunts me to this day. I mean, like the fact that sort of like one day I'll die, you know, and one day like, you know, my my daughter who's an infant right now will one die. I mean, I can't. I think of that maybe like ten times in any given day, and just feel this like overwhelming wave of nausea. Okay, so let's because uh, like I, I now it's coming to mind as I read an essay that you wrote for the New York Times about anxiety and pregnancy mm. and how you went off mm-hmm. ang- you went off of anxiety meds when you got pregnant, um, and then yeah. I, I didn't realize I don't know if you alluded to seasonal affective disorder in that essay, but I didn't realize that that was part of um, what you battled, and you know I, it sounds like you have a heightened sensitivity to mortality, which I think is common among writerly people. 
like I always like this is a joke that I've often made is that like you can read a, a really good writer and get the sense that they have such a great grasp of life and existence and that you know life it, it can trick you into thinking that maybe they understand life better but I, I sometimes think that writers are writers precisely because they grapple more and they're more um, dysfunctional or uh, troubled do you know what I'm saying by like I do. I, I mean, I do. I, I know that that's certainly true for me. You know, I mean, writing because it, it's not it's not socially acceptable. You know, for me to like ten times a day, like lay down on the floor, you know, and curl up into fetal position and grab the ankle of you know the the nearest coworker of mine who passes by in the hall, you know, <laughs> and, and start whimpering about how awful it is that we're all going to die. You know, I just like I can't do that. You know, and stay gainfully employed or even you know get three meals. A day in, you know, like I, I just, I simply can't behave that way. Um, and, and writing is really the only, you know, sort of place that it's safe for me to go, I feel like, and just kind of bellow that, you know, like really, really kind of gutturally yell, you know, um, in, in, you know, albeit sort of cloaked in metaphorical ways, but, but, um, you know, to just acknowledge like, like the total sadness of that, um, because I mean, it's certainly, you know, I'm, I'm 32, you know, and, and I, I have no, if anything, I think I've gotten more uncomfortable with, um, you know, with the thought and the knowledge of death as I've gotten older instead of less. I remember one time, and I don't know how old he was at the time, I think probably like his mid-40s, but um, my philosophy teacher in high school, I remember, was, was kind of lecturing and saying, you know, like, when you get to, when you get to be my age, you understand that you're going to die and you're comfortable with that. Um, and I, I don't, I mean, I hope that, that in 10 years, you know, I, my sort of perception of that radically changes and I get comfortable with it. But, um, I've only gotten, gotten sadder about it. Um, the well, older I get. Well, you know, it's funny is that like, you know, I, I think most people oscillate. I certainly oscillate. Like there'll be times where mm. I tell myself like, I've got this, like, it's okay. <laughs> you know, like it, everyone does it. It's just part of the deal. And then there can even be times like on a grimmer note where it's like, F this, like, I don't care, you know, like life is such a pain in the ass. Bring it. Yeah, bring it. Exactly. Like, like, like release me from this, you know, like cycle of suffering. But then, um, you know, I've had like recent experiences because I'm, I'm a very pale, white, freckly man and I go to the, and I'm one of those people who goes to the dermatologist and, um, there was this like, God, a situation where, Every time I go to the dermatologist, I go like once a year just to get checked. And mm. um, I think because it's possible that she's just cashing checks because she always finds like one spot where she's like, oh, we got to remove this, you know, and mm. there's never a time where I walk out of there without having something like hacked off my body. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I'll, I'll try to compress this. I was on a long flight from, uh, you know, overseas back home and I was watching a Bob Marley documentary on my iPad. And it was like, got to the part where Bob Marley died of a rare form of melanoma and how it, yeah. it appeared under his like toenail. And I looked down at my thumb and I shit you not, I saw the exact same stripe. I forget what the name of the melanoma <gasps> is, but it's like a brown vertical. It looks like, it looks like it was painted on almost. 
And so I looked down and it was like, it's like basically incurable. Like you're going to die if you have this. And I made an appointment when I, like, as soon as I landed, you know, like I made an appointment to go see this doctor. And of course she couldn't see me for like a week. So I spent a week thinking like, I'm going to die. Like Googling this thing, (laughs) like looking at pictures. Yeah. Yeah. And it was awful. I didn't want to go. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it, it brought it into high relief. And then as soon as she told me like, Oh no, you just like, you must've like slammed your finger in a door and forgotten about it, which seems sort of crazy, but you know, <laughs> I, I must've like banged it on something, but it wasn't the dreaded stripe. It just looked like it. Um, mm-hmm. and so then I had like for a day, you know, this lease on life and then eventually just like fell back into my normal sleepwalk, you know? <laughs> um, no, I've, I've seen that, that documentary and that also is like a, is one of my like terrible anxiety triggers like watching um or reading anything that sort of acknowledges um like the death of sort of this you know like great amazing human being you know i mean it's sort of like geez if you know like bob marley can't escape it (laughs) right like i really have no chance because i think like in the back of my mind there's always this like little voice. I mean, I think it's, it's honestly like more common among children and teenagers, but I have it, you know, of like, I'm not really ever going to die. Um, you know, and then I see this, you know, then when you sort of see pictures of him, you know, like getting emaciated right from the cancer and you're just like, Oh, I am. So, you know, Bob Marley's dead. Of course you're going to (laughs) die. It's going to happen. And you know, uh, it's something that I think people generally don't like to contemplate but uh again like i i kind of feel like and i don't mean to, i don't mean to aggrandize myself uh by saying this i just think it's like a part of my character but i like to contemplate it i think more than most people or i, I can mm. i don't know i think like for me it's the big thing you know what i'm saying yeah. like I, I can't shake it like i right i think it's actually healthy to remember like first thing every morning like okay this is temporary like i think there's mm-hmm, something actually mm-hmm. positive in that as opposed to being completely morbid you know and i think yeah for some people the like the pain of that reality is so great that they'd rather just pretend it doesn't exist but i think mm-hmm. if you go that route like when it actually does come around you're you're going to panic <laughs> mm. terribly yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's hard, you know, I, I don't know. Cause sometimes I, I, I sort of like wish for that, um, you know, that bliss, like, you know, I'll, I'll be in the like, you know, food mart and like, I'll just look over at, you know, this woman that's like, you know, looking at a, a bag of corn chips and like picking her crotch, you know, um, <laughs> sun and chips, yawning. Sun chips, actually. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, why can't I just feel that way? You know, like, why can't I just pick my crotch in the face of death? <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, sure. I don't know. It, it, it seems some, yeah, well, I, I don't know. Well, let me, because it- I mean, we're all going to die whether we worry about it every day of our life. Like intellectually, I know that I know that worrying about it every day of my life does not, in truth, save it. Right. But I think like, I think that there are some people, there have to be, there have to be plenty of people in human history who have died well, which is to say (laughs) peacefully or relatively peacefully with like dignity intact, like not Mm. shitting themselves in fear. Like that's got to be a possibility within the human behavioral spectrum. Like why can't I want to go that way? I want to have some courage for God's sake. And 
what I always say too is that like I want it, like the big litmus for me and like uh, sometimes people say what's your goal in life you know that like that really annoying broad question and uh, the way that I you got to say it in the Keanu Reeves voice I think <laughs> right but I think like my goal in life is to maintain my sense of humor at the moment of my death or in the moments mm-hmm. leading up to it like if you have your wits about you then. Mm. that's a good, I think that's a worthy goal because mm. it'll be really hard. And I think like, that's what I'm working on is trying to, you know, get my shit together enough to have courage and to, you know, I don't know, die before you die, find peace, or there's a lot of different ways to phrase it. Yeah. So, uh, now that we've covered death, <laughs> <laughs> check. Yeah. Right. Uh, I want to talk about um, sex because why not? You know, it's a big thing uh, with your new novel. And I think mm. it's, you know, it's uh, something else that we all spend lots of mental energy on. <laughs> so, you know, briefly, your new novel deals with a pedophile, but the predator in the book uh, who narrates the book is a female, which is kind of a mm-hmm. new, it's a new twist. Uh, not necessarily in life, but it's a new twist in fiction. I think we're, mm. we're we're more accustomed, I think, to seeing male pedophiles portrayed in our mm-hmm. books or whatever. But uh, where does this come from? You know, like where do you have a sense of like where the the kernel of this story was for you? I um, I mean, I I'm I'm interested. I I know just sort of like for myself as a reader. Um, you know, the, the kind of books that, that really stay with me or that I keep circling back to, you know, are, are just sort of the the ones where I, I haven't had that reading experience prior to that book. You know, it it feels it feels like I don't know, in, in some way kind of there's a newness to it or, or uh, an odd territoriality, you know, that I haven't kind of encountered um, that it covers. Um, and I mean, it, it just sort of interested me for a lot of reasons. Um, I mean, one, one is kind of, you know, I mean, sort of you, you bring up, you know, that, that death is something we think, you know, a lot about and, and kind of are all as humans obsessed with and sex is the same. Um, you know, but I mean, I think like if I wrote a book about death or if I wrote a book, um, you know, with just sort of like extreme violence, you know, really graphic violence. Um, I mean, somehow we don't, we, we still don't sort of have kind of the, we, we've lost our national discomfort, I think somehow, um, around those two, those two things. Around what, um, what violence and? And death, I think. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think that, I think that we can, we can read about both of those in ways where um, even at, at its wrongness, it, its wrongest wrong, um, you know, it, it, we, we've somehow seen it or done it or have been there unless, unless um, it involves like dogs, in which case, people, Oh God. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. What are you doing to me, Brad? <laughs> people can be mutilated in the most horrific ways, but like old yeller gets shot and it's like, I can't oh, deal. God. God, you're right. Like I wouldn't even let my mind go there. So, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, that was, wow, okay. That was a kick in the soul. Dogs dying. Yeah, no, I definitely have not. Okay, yes, yes, you're right. You were so correct on that one. Um, you know, but, but, but like sex and, you know, particularly sexual taboos, um, I mean, I still, you know, like that, that can make me nervously giggle like no other, you know, that can make me feel ashamed and embarrassed and, and wrong. And, um, I mean, I don't know. I, I just have always, I've always kind of felt, you know, I mean, I, I think there are just, there's so many different kinds of writing and so many different kinds of writers and, and people write, you know, for, for all sorts of reasons, but I've always really, really kind of felt like, um, you know, one thing that I need to do as a writer is, is sort of push myself, you know, kind of to, to, to my uncomfortable limits, I guess. Um, so I, I, I kind of wanted a topic that, that I could do that with that, that I'd sort of, you know, multiple times writing it, want to back down on and, and would have to sort of, you know, force myself not to. Um, I wanted something. It's interesting. It's interesting that you say that because like what I keep reading about the book and in reading the book is that the word fearless comes up, the word <laughs> risky. But the point I'm trying to make is that there are, so, you know, it, it seems to be the case, and you can either confirm or deny this, but it seems to be the case that if you did reach those kinds of crossroads in the creation of the book where mm-hmm. you wanted to back down or you're like, should I go here? Um, mm-hmm. I think to your credit, you almost always said, yes, let's keep pushing. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, no, I, I wanted to. It, I mean, it's funny because, I mean, I think that when, when a book, you know, like when, when you write a book that, that sort of does that or, you know, that, that sort of says, hey, you know, like I'm crossing a boundary here, um, people sort of tend to assume that, that kind of you, you know, you and your personality, like, you know, this is something that comes very easy to you or you're a provocateur or you just kind of inherently love conflict and confrontation, um, you know, and, and I'm really, really the opposite. Um, like, I mean, it, it pains me to no end when, when strangers on the internet don't like me for whatever reason, you know? Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I still haven't quite, you know, wrapped, wrapped my mind, you know, around sort of where, where the urge, you know, or, or kind of the, I mean, I really felt like I had, I had to write this and I, I had to, I had to write it in this way. Um, I, I, I don't know if, if that's, if, if it's actually kind of because, you know, I, I have this overwhelming need to be liked and, and somehow, you know, I, I just in the back of my subconscious had to do something that, um, you know, that would, that would almost be guaranteed to bring the opposite that, um, <laughs> That would make people who haven't even read it, you know, um, hate me. But um, have you got? Have you really gotten a lot of that? I mean, I know, like we were talking before we came on the air, I believe about how like you can't read comments anymore, but uh, or that it's not healthy to read comments on the internet, which you know, yeah. But I mean, have you been getting? I mean, in the comments that you have read that led to you, you know, your realization of this, like, yeah, were you getting a lot of blowback and nastiness? A lot. I mean, a lot. I like it. It's literally doctor's orders that I that I'm not allowed to to kind of look at things on the internet because I mean it it nearly sort of kind of pushed me you know to to have this um you know sort of breakdown um 
I, I just like I, I knew that it would, especially I think kind of like when you work a lot in academia or, you know, you you teach workshops or you've taken a lot of workshops. I mean, I think you just kind of get insulated a little bit, you know, because I mean, here you have like students and peers that are kind of discussing your work and, you know, in, in these very kind of you know, couched in these very intellectualized terms, you know, that are in no way a personal attack, right? <laughs> and I mean, I think kind of somehow I, I just kind of got normalized to that and assumed that, you know, the reaction, the the reactions to the book, even when they, you know, were negative would kind of come, you know, based on those terms of like, what, you know, well, what interesting things is this text doing or... um you know what uh what what goals you know do do we think sort of the author had in mind you know rather than just you know this this woman is sick and deserves to die um this woman you know should be in prison um <laughs> You know, like the like those were were just kind of. Um, I mean, you know, it sounds it sounds really naive to say, but I, I genuinely was unprepared for kind of the quantity and caliber um, of of kind of blowback um, a reaction. But that's of a, you know that's good get. for the book, isn't it? I mean, like I hate to sound so crass about it, but any. I mean, <laughs> I tend to think when people are responding with that level of passion about a piece of art. Um, Unless the internet is just like, I mean, it depends where, I guess, where stuff is written. Like, there's so many people, like, lurking on comment boards on certain sites that have huge readerships that right. it could potentially just be misleading. But generally speaking, I think when people, uh, when passions are inflamed and people are, you know, getting nasty, uh, maybe that's a good sign for, you know, the work itself in a way, you know, if not for you personally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I, you know, I, I don't know. I guess we'll see. It just, it, I mean, it, it's really hard when, um, it, you know, it, it almost kind of seems like this, this sort of, um, I don't know, kind of self, uh, self, self-hurting or self-destructing kind of tendency because, like, like what I write and and I guess my expectations for my writing are like completely sometimes at odds, you know, like, I mean, I write this kind of extremely, you know, challenging, sexually graphic book, um, you know, with, with kind of a first person, um, you know, sexual deviant and, you know, somehow I expect to get, you know, reviews like, you know, Tuesdays with Maury got, you know, and where I, where I just expect people to be like, I love this. Um, you know, like this is just such a great, a great, you know, book that I really treasure. Um, you know, which, which I think even if, even if, you know, you, you sort of in, enjoy my book and, you know, and, or at least see the value, you know, and kind of the, um, the experience you have reading it. Um, I don't know. And, and that, I think that that's just kind of like a pro tip that I'm happy to, to pass on to fellow writers in general. You know, if you want kind of this, this universally warm critical reception of your book, don't write a, uh, a first person narrative from the point of view of a, a comical, sarcastic female pedophile. Um, <laughs> That's just kind of um, I can hear listen, yeah. I can hear listeners scribbling that down in there. <laughs> my my tip for all of you 
right? If if you do want to take on that comic, yeah, maybe don't make it a dark comedy like I did. Um, well, I want to ask you. I want to ask you about the sex scenes because yeah, this isn't you know from a writerly perspective. This interests me because it's not easy to do mm-hmm. uh, to write sex, whatever the context. I think like uh, some writers can write sex really well and a lot of writers can't and i think it's really mm. f- like there's the bad sex and fiction award for a reason i don't know if you're familiar with that <laughs> yes but of course i always i, ch- I sometimes read it uh, in the monologues uh, on this show because i think it's so funny <laughs> yes. but when you sat down to write i mean not only is sex difficult to write in and of itself but then you get into pedophilic sex and it's like you know it kind of ups the ante to an extent mm. so like how did you approach it yeah i i mean because it's first person as well, right? I mean, I think that 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 kind of lends its own challenges too, sort of with this topic. But um, I mean, just just kind of as as a female writer, you know, and, and writing a female character. Um, I mean, you know, we're just kind of so I think used to and caught up with female characters. Um, you know, needing to be likable, let alone, you know, um, you know, unredeemable, you know, like, uh, you know, to have a female character that's just absolutely unredeemable is, is I think, um, really rare, you know, um, even if, even if kind of they're, they're a character that we don't like, um, I think there's, you know, often if, if they're the protagonist, there's some kind of, I don't know, an insistence, you know, that, um, you know, that, well, you know, women can't be all bad. They just simply, they they can't, Um, you know, so that you have to show kind of some, you know, some other side, Um, you know, and and I really felt kind of um, the need to resist that and subvert that and, and truly just kind of make her this, like, you know, monstrous walking libido, um, so I wanted, you know, I, I I felt that it was important for the sex to be really graphic and for um, that graphicness itself even to be super, super exaggerated. Um, I mean, when when she kind of goes, you know, for for sex, she really kind of goes for it um, when it when it's with a um, an adolescent, when it's with kind of a an adult male. She wants to like take quaaludes. Um, and pass out to avoid the experience. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I felt like I had to approach it, you know, from kind of the view of, of her, of her kind of super, super rampant sexuality. Um, you know, I mean, I think what I've read, um, you know, most of what I've read, uh, about, you know, kind of, female sex scenes, sex scenes of female characters, you know, um, I mean, often it's, you know, either sort of in like the romance genre, um, or, you know, it's, it's in kind of this sort of socially acceptable, you know, um, relationship situation, um, you know, and, and I don't know, I just, I, I felt this, I felt this profound need to make it really unacceptable, um, I, I thought that that was important to, um, I thought it was important to, to kind of cross every line I could think of with it. Um, well, and I was going to, I, mean, I was going to ask okay. you too, with regard to creating this character, 
how much research you had to do? Like, did you pick up a lot of books on pedophiles? Were you like when you were fleshing out the psychological interior of this character? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, how much X? You know, how much of that was intuitive, and then how much did you really have to study up so that you could find a comfort zone and find a level of reality? You know, because not only are you dealing with like you know a, a story where you know, you, you've created a world and a, and a voice that people can believe in, but you're also working at the level of satire. And I think when you work at that level, it implies uh, a certain kind of mastery that might extend a, a little bit further. Do you know what I'm saying? It's one thing to write this down kind of like fact by fact or note by note, but then to satirize it means you really have a handle on it. So like, how did you get a handle on it? Yeah, I... um I mean, I, I, I did read tons of cases, but I I was really firm in that I didn't want this to be um, to be kind of some some realistic psychological portrait of any you know kind of like one woman or or you know one specific you know kind of character from a news story right that that sort of dramatized. Um, and developed, you know, because I mean, I think that, I think that just sort of in, in general, kind of with, with cases like these, um, it, it's, you know, the, the, the sort of variables in every single case are, are, are really, are really intense, um, that, that what might, you know, compel kind of one one woman to do this, you know, may be completely different from what would compel another woman to do it. Um, and I mean, in, in terms of kind of actual pedophiles, you know, which, which I did sort of, you know, do a lot of psychological research on, it's, there's really no kind of current, con, like concrete understanding or, you know, one specific thing where we can say this is why they do it. Which freaks um, me out. It's like I've asked, <laughs> I've asked like shrink friends of mine because like I'm like, you know, what in the world is driving these people? Like what, right. the, you know, it's like the, and it's like, it's almost like they're, um, I mean, it, it's not even almost, they're out of control. They can't control themselves. Like. I right. don't know. It just seems so hideous. And it's like, and, and it also, I mean, not only is the act itself hideous, um, but it's also like a hideous affliction. You know, it's like these poor right. people, like they can't control this <laughs> impulse and they have this dark shit going on. Like, <laughs> you know, that's awful. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I felt, I mean, you know, when, when kind of, you know, people who've studied, you know, pedophilia for like, for decades, you know, um, can't really agree, you know, or, or sort of, you know, matter of factly say this is, this is, you know, why, why they're doing it. I don't know. I mean, I, I just felt that it was, it would be irresponsible of me, you know, to, to kind of like fictionalize this, um, you know, this character and say, you know, and, and sort of imply and, you know, these are her reasons and, you know, here we can kind of see, you know, how, how this is beginning to happen with her. Um, I mean, I, I just felt like it was, it would be much more interesting, um, actually, you know, to, to write a book that really sort of looked at the social kind of reception of cases like these, um, you know, and, and looked at, at kind of the way that, that sort of, you know, we give women who do this, um, I mean, in, in contrast to men who do this, um, a pretty large legal path. 
Um, you know, and the, and the ways that we also kind of seem to have this this kind of social inability to see women um, as sexual predators when the victim's male. Um, well, you know, that, I, mean, I, I used that's... to always joke. I mean, I've joked before. I've made this joke before, which is probably <laughs> inappropriate, but it's like, if only, if only some right. hot teacher had loved me. Sure, <laughs> sure, was, sure. No, I, was, like, I, I mean, absolutely. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I should say this too, because this is what, I mean, I was thinking about this before we got on the phone. I was like, you know, I think this is, this sort of stuff is really common. I think mm-hmm. more common than people might w- like to admit. And I look back mm-hmm. on my high school experience and there was a male teacher who dated for a long time uh, a girl in the grade above me, and they were uh, they were a couple, and everyone knew uh, it, and it was sort of just Jesus. like this quietly accepted thing. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about it, and I was like, you know, the the, the reaction uh, or the reflex is, oh, that's awful. Like, oh, what was mm-hmm. he? Because he was about thirty, and she was about seventeen, and. Mm-hmm. You know, clearly he's a predator, but here's the thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I would, I haven't spoken to this girl in years, um, Mm. but maybe they just dated. (laughs) Like, is it possible? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, cause I don't get the sense that like, there was never any charges filed. The teacher Mm. never got fired. Uh, Mm -hmm. her parents had to have known his parents did know. And I know Mm -hmm. that for a fact, like she would go over there for dinner. Like it was a, you know, so it's like. It gets murky and it's like, you know, I don't know exactly how to parse it, but I think that, um, I don't know. Like, what do you think? Are they all predators? Is that predatory behavior or is he just kind of like a lonely 30 year old who can only like, who has low self-esteem and can only relate to like girls who are 15 years younger than him? I don't know. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and I think that that's kind of one of, um, you know, one of sort of the questions, you know, that that's important that kind of comes out of a dialogue about this. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I tend to, you know, I, I tend to really sort of know and acknowledge, like, I, I remember when I first heard about the Mary Kay Letourneau case, right? And she's, the and they are married. I was going to say, she actually like was in love. I mean, it looks like they were like in love you know, mm-hmm. like, and continue, right. continue to be a couple. However, odd the Genesis, you know? Right. Right. And, you know, I mean, I remember like, I, I believe that he was 13, right. And like, she was this mother of four kids. And I first heard about that when I was, I think, 15 and then 10th grade. And I remember sort of when I heard about it, you know, having kind of this very like, you know, I mean, we we literally just read Romeo and Juliet, you know, in, in class. I remember, you know, really thinking like, well, you know, God, like, you know, what if they are just in love? You know, like, why are they taking her to jail? Um, you know, and, and I think that, now, you know, and now I, I sort of see, you know, as, as a 32-year-old adult, right, I mean, who has like a 15-year-old nephew, right, Um now I'm like, whoa, <laughs> right. right? Like that is quite messed up. I mean, you know, I, I think what bothers me kind of the the very most, you know, is just simply kind of, I mean, it, it, it's kind of twofold, you know, I mean, one, I think that there's always going to be a, a power dynamic, you know, and I mean, when when sort of you, whenever you make an absolute statement, you know, I mean, I think people always want to argue for the exception, you know, of like, well, what if, you know, there's just kind of like this, 
you know, this woman who, you know, her husband beats her and she just has a super low self-esteem and there's this like cunning, conniving, you know, like a 15 year old boy, you know, who, who kind of, you know, bullies her into it, you know, but, but I mean, I, you know, I think really kind of as adults, you know, like no matter what we're, we're kind of thinking or, or feeling, you know, I mean, I, I really think it's just our duty to not have sex with kids. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, first of all, but, but I, you know, I really do think like 99% of the time, you know, that, that, you know, there's just going to be a power dynamic. I mean, you have more life experience, you know, you have more, you know, sexual knowledge and probably, you know, much more sexual experience as well. Um, you know, I mean, it, it just, you know, your, your ability to, to kind of, you know, be manipulative, I think is just so much, you know, greater having had sort of, you know, twice as many, you know, years on earth. Um, you know, I mean, I just feel like the student's always going to be at the losing end of that. I mean, let alone just kind of the, the <laughs> classroom dynamic, right? I mean, just the fact that this is an authority figure. This is someone who's supposed to be, you know, sort of like shielding you and looking out, for your well-being and, and kind of really sort of, I mean, you know, I think in school kind of it's it's also, you know, a, an educator's duty to, to sort of separate body and mind, you know. Um, I mean, even, you know, just because of social training, you know, and, and I have to, I stop myself all the time from doing this, but I mean, I think, I think socially we're, we're kind of trained, um, you know, to, to comment on women's appearances, you know? So, I mean, like, you know, sometimes when my, my female students, you know, walk into class in a way that I never would if, like, say, a male student, you know, walked in and, and say, you know, was dressed up that day, you know, I mean, it's kind of like my, my urge to say, like, you know, oh, you look, you know, you look very nice today, or, oh, I really like your dress, um, you know, and, and, and I really stop myself, you know, I mean, be, because I think, you know, I... I, I shouldn't be commenting, you know, on, on anyone's appearance, you know, like I, I should be commenting on the work they do in my class. Um, you know, so I mean, just, just to, you know, gosh, like how I still remember some of the things like some of my male teachers said to me when I was in high school, you know, that, that I consider to be, you know, that they felt were compliments. Like what? Um, like, uh, like, look how, like, I, I didn't I didn't wear a dress a lot, right? So I mean I remember one time I wore like um you know, like a very long skirt and a, a shirt, you know, and, and they said something to me like, you know, um, look how beautiful you look today. You look so feminine. Right. I mean, which made me feel so uncomfortable, you know, and I, I know they just meant that as a compliment of, you know, oh, you don't normally look sexually attractive <laughs> or like a woman, but today you kind of do, um, you know, but, but I mean, it just made me feel so weird, you know, um, and, and I, I just feel like that goes on so much more with female students, you know, where maybe they would be, you know, having kind of an intellectual conversation with male students or, you know, talking about sort of, you know, the work that they've done or, um, you know, with, with, I feel like so often, you know, just kind of with, 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 you know, girls and women, it's sort of like, you look so pretty, right? Um, I you say, know, I I say that like... to my daughter. She's like three. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm messing her up irrevocably. It's already happening. <laughs> no, 
I mean, and I, you know, that's, it, it's just something that I think is interesting to think about because I say that, you know, to mine too. And, and I kind of catch myself, you know, uh-huh. and I'm like, why don't I, you know, I mean, as she gets older, you know, I, I really want to sort of be asking her, you know, these questions that, that tell her that her thoughts matter and her ideas matter and, you know, talking about, you know, things like, like politics and, you know, war and, you know, I mean, heavy topics that, you know, that, that sort of tell her, you know, and, and are kind of this coded signal to her that I, I take her thoughts seriously and that she should always feel very, you know, free to comment on, on really serious topics. Um, but, I, you know, I mean, I think this just kind of like, you know, gets at all that, you know, I mean, I, I really, really do feel that, that gosh, you know, can't we just as a society agree, you know, that that no matter what the gender, like educators don't need to <laughs> sleep with their students, you know, or or you know, sexualize or objectify them at all, you know, in in conversation. I mean, that that just seems like something we could all get behind. But I mean, <laughs> I'm I, you know, I, I teach at kind of the college level, and my God, you know, I mean. I, I think kind of as a nation, we have at least moved to the fact of like, okay, you, you know, you teach high school, you teach junior high, you get caught sleeping with a student, you know, you're at least going to be suspended, um, you know, but I mean, on college campuses, it's a much grayer area, right? Sure, I mean, yeah. like, everyone is, you know, um, usually, you know, like over 18, you know, and kind of the legal barriers been removed. Um it, you know, and, and it's kind of like, in, you know, institution by institution, whether there's absolutely no policy on it, you know, whether it's like not smiled upon, but you're not going to, you know, actually have any sort of you oh, know, it, ramifications. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. All the time. Sure. Um, you know, and, and that 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 bothers me that bothers me too. You know, it does. Um, you know, and I mean, I say this knowing, you know, like having friends who have married, you know, their students, um, it, you know, it, 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 it raises my eyebrow a little bit, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I just, I, I have less of a problem with it when it begins, you know, like after they're, you know, out of the class well, or right. after they've graduated. But... I, I was just going to say, like, the thing about it, the, like, the thing about it is, like, there's no rules. There's lots of weird, right. you know, like, re- great relationships that are born in all sorts of strange ways or even, mm-hmm. like, you know, difficult ways or, you know, ways that involve uh, pain for other people or, you know, there's different ways that, that it happens. But the the thing that comes to mind for me, even if it's in college and there's no legal barrier to a, a physical relationship, is the notion that there is that power element where you're the teacher right. and that's the student. There's something about that that feels icky to me. And yes, no, I, I think that it's an I think that it it is an ickiness, you know, and that it it really kind of goes against what we you know say we're trying to do um, as educators. But I mean, like when I was in college and it's kind of, I've never talked about this and it's sort of empowering, you know, for me to, to talk about it because, um, I mean, it just kind of felt like this like filthy secret, you know, that I had to keep, but, um, it wasn't when I was in his class. 
so, you know, he did sort of the right thing there, right? Um, but, uh, you know, one of my teachers was like, you know, hey, we should, you know, get together, go out to lunch. You know, I'm like, you know, you're you're a poor student. I'm like, sure, you know, like free lunch. Um, because, like, I we had Hare Krishnas come to our campus all the time at UF, and you, you could just get lunch for, like, a donation. Sure. Um, and because I'm a bad person, I would put in, like, 20 pennies, which would sound really substantial, you know, but wouldn't like be that substantial, um, you know, be, because, um, because, you know, you're just always broke as a college student. You're supposed to give like $3 or something. And I give like 20 pennies. That's shameful. Um, but so I'm like free lunch. And when we're done with lunch, he's like, Hey, you know, um, you know, do you want to come back? you know, to, to my place, you know, watch a movie, which I mean, raised like a tiny flag, right. For me, <laughs> but he drove, right. So I'm kind of like at his like automotive mercy. Um, and I'm just like a very people pleasing person, you know, like it, it's hard for me to, to say no, particularly to a professor. Right. So I'm like, sure. You know, we get back to his, you know, a, place and it just kind of devolved real quick. Um, he was like, can I give you a foot massage, you know? And like, by that point, I'm just like, Oh shit. You know, like it, it is going there. Oh. You know, I, I was really hoping it wasn't going to go there. Right. But, but you can't really ignore it then. Right. Oh. So I'm like, the, Oh, the dreaded, um, the dreaded foot massage opener. It's just, it's too quick. <sighs> Very yeah. So I was like, no, you know, my feet are sweaty, you know, some, <laughs> something like that. And he's like, I don't mind. I like feet, you know, and I'm like, oh, shit, you know. And then, you know, I'm, you know, kind of checking my watch, thinking how I'm going to segue out of there. And he's like, what would you say if I told you I wanted to have sex with you? He literally phrased it like in that hypothetical. I'm sure like there was some like legalese, right, <laughs> reason that he said it in that particular way, right? Um, and, you know, and I was just like, I have a boyfriend, da, 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 da. Um, you know, kind of tried to play it off as though, you know, that there was this, um, that it wasn't, you know, because like the whole, the whole thing was creepy and repulsive. It's just that, you know, I'm monogamous. Um, but, I mean, what that did was really make me feel, make me think back to every positive thing he'd ever said about my work, right? Make me think back to my grade in the course, um, you know, and, and just like really sort of erased the credibility of all of it, you know? I mean, it just came, you know, back to like, oh, well, did he do and say this, this, and this because he wanted to sleep with me when this was over? Um, yes. I mean, in, in a pretty <laughs> shitty way, you know, a, a really, really shitty way. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I kind of have that problem with it too. You know, I mean, I think that, I don't know. I, I just think that, man, you know, like it's a really big pond, the world we live in. There are a whole lot of people on the planet. You know, I, I just, I don't think it's that, that huge of a step, you know, or a leap to say, why don't we just not, you know, date our students right. or ask them to have sex with us. Right. I agree. And, uh, <laughs> it's interesting, you know, it's interesting territory. It's great. I mean, it's it, as, um, uncomfortable as it can be to contemplate it. That's actually very, uh, interesting territory for fiction. And I congratulate you on the job you've done with it because it's not easy to pull off, uh, this kind of thing and to make it, uh, into high art. So kudos to you. Oh, thank you, Brad. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk and best of luck, uh, going forward with the next thing. Thank you for having me. I love your show so much. This was a huge thrill. 
All right, folks, that is it. That's Alyssa Nutting. Great guest. Go get her novel. It's called Tampa. It is available now from Echo. You can find her online at alyssanutting.com. She's on Twitter, where her handle is at Alyssa Nutting, and I believe she's also on the Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get the app, the free official Other People app. It is available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It is the best and most user-friendly way to listen to the program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes, and you can access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that if you haven't done so already. It's free. Uh, Otherwise, thanks for the letters, the good feedback. I'm sorry if I didn't get to yours uh, this time around. Uh, If any of you ever want to reach me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Otherwise, what is going on? It was a good week. I'm a little tired, but it was a good week. Uh, I went to the ESPYs. It's like the Oscars for sports. I did that last week. Uh, My wife works on the show, so I got to see famous athletes at close range, which which is always fun. It's a good show. John Hamm hosted and uh, I got to stand, you know, 20 feet from LeBron James at one point. And for the first time ever, uh, I was in a room with Tom Cruise. So that happened. We did not exchange pleasantries, by the way. I just saw him briefly and heard him laugh. Please remember that Yeats died of heart failure. And that Schopenhauer's father jumped out of a window. That is all for now. Thank you for listening. Thanks again to Alyssa Nutting. I will be back soon with another conversation with another book person for you. Okay? Uh, That's it. I think that's a wrap. That's all for now. It's time to say goodbye. It's time to put the headphones down and to step slowly away from your handheld device.